Welcome to the Nen Valley Vineyard podcast. What you're about to listen to is some teaching from our Sunday services. We're a church made up of people from Wellingborough through to Oundle spread across the Nen Valley and beyond. If you want to know more about us or find out how to get involved, visit our website, which is nenvalley.church, or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Nen Valley Vineyard. Okay, well, morning everyone. As Tom said, I'm um, Maddie and I'll be continuing this morning our series which we've titled The Story of God, where we want to explore the big story of scripture that we can all take part in. And this week is called Promise and Purpose. So in our prologue a few weeks ago, Tom introduced us to the idea of thinking about the Bible as one unified story, not just lots of little split up books. And when coming to scripture, we need to consider whether we're reading the Bible through our own cultural lens and expectations. In Act 1, we were reminded that the story doesn't start with sin. It begins with God and a good creation. Creation was good and humanity was called by God to look after it and draw out potential from it. However, in Act 2, which Simon covered last week, calamity ensued. The life of shalom with God was broken by humans choosing autonomy rather than trusting in God's words. So what happens next? This third act is the start of our redemption arc. In some way, the next 20 minutes or so will be a bit like flashbacks in books and films. Chronologically, I'll be jumping around a little bit, but hopefully this will provide us some background and context to understand the key promises of God in the Bible and how this gives us a purpose for today and how we're living right now. This arc is not God's plan B, a reboot or a reset to try again, but God is sovereign at work, making choices to use his people to live out his redemptive story on earth together and bring his blessings to everyone. Now, before I get too far into this, I'm going to pause and read an extract from a hopefully well-known story The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, written by C.S. Lewis. Tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Who is Aslan? asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. Word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this moment. He'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. Is is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. The quickest way you can help is by going to meet Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. Not that we don't need you too, for that's another of the old rhymes. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at care, paravel and throne, the evil time will be over and done. And that's why the witch is always on the lookout for any humans in Narnia. She's been watching for you this many a year. And if she knew there were four of you, 
she'd be more dangerous still. What's that to do with it? asked Peter. Because of another prophecy, said Mr. Beaver. Down at Ker Paravel, there are four thrones, and it's a saying in Narnia that when two sons of Adam and two daughters of Eve sit in those four thrones, then it will be the end, not only of the white witch's reign, but of her life. So as a summary, the four Pevensey children had stumbled through a wardrobe from our world into this magical land called Narnia, where it was currently always winter, but never Christmas. And they were completely unaware of the history of Narnia or the prophecies concerning them that were bringing the hope to its inhabitants. And because of this, the characters of Mr. and Mrs. Beaver had to act as guides and sources of knowledge and wisdom for them and for us as the readers. Without hearing these prophecies and promises, they didn't truly understand their significance in the bigger story of Narnia or the roles that they needed to play to help restore a rule of goodness and peace. Now, stepping back into our topic, the major word for today that we'll see repeated and explored several times is covenant. These covenants form the architecture of the Bible story, and many of the relationships which are explored or broken across scripture hinge on these covenants. Tim Mackey from the Bible Project has said that if we were challenged to make a list of words that come to mind when thinking about what Christians believe, the word covenant probably doesn't feature in the top 20, but in his opinion, it ought to be in the top five. So what is a covenant? In our modern day, the, the only time this word might be now used and heard is in a Church of England wedding service to describe marriage and bless the rings. Let these rings be a symbol of unending love and faithfulness to remind them of the vow and covenant which they've made this day through Jesus Christ our Lord. At its core, a covenant is a partnership with both sides making promises or commitments to each other. And understanding um, covenant partnerships in the Bible can help shape how a follower of Jesus sees themselves, sees the world and sees God. When the Torah, which is the first part of the Bible, was being written, covenants were much more common. They were understood and recognized as something that formed part of everyday life in social, civil, leadership levels. And the word covenant might appear more frequently or perhaps not at all in your Bibles, depending on what translation you're reading. So the first example we'll look at is from 1 Kings, chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. So Hiram gave Solomon all the cedar and pine wood that he wanted. In return, Solomon gave an annual gift to Hiram of 20,000 cores of wheat to eat and 20,000 cores of pure oil for his palace use. Now the Lord made Solomon wise, just as he had promised. Solomon and Hiram made a covenant and had peace. It's exciting stuff. <laughs> so this covenant, a partnership between two kings, was economic, legal, and social. These were agreements that shouldn't be broken or reneged on, but based around a relationship, not just business contracts, in this case, importing and exporting goods to each other. There was an expectation that each side would continue to work with the other, supplying what they needed and keeping up their end of the deal. There is a commitment and there are promises in return. Next, we can look at a more significant use of the word covenant, which is God as a witness in Israelite marriage. 
this is an area of life which God cares about really deeply, so he takes the breaking of it without good reason very seriously. There are two examples here from Malachi and Proverbs. Malachi 2.14 says, The Lord is witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. And similarly, Proverbs 2.17 talks about a woman who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. Covenants are also important to take note of because in the Bible we see God as the first and the most repeated covenant maker. It's part of his character, just in the same way as being a God of abounding in love and faithfulness to us. So there's four important covenants in the Old Testament, which we'll have a whistle-stop tour of now, and see how God is working through these covenants to draw his people to him. So these will be Noah, Abram, Israel as a nation, and David. So firstly, Noah, which is in Genesis chapter 9. This is the first covenant made after the flood, and God renews his commitment with his good creation through a covenant with Noah. And God promises not to send another flood like this on the earth, though Noah isn't asked for anything in return. We often think about the rainbow at the end of the story, um, but God also almost repeats the same words to Noah that were spoken over Adam and Eve in the opening chapters of Genesis, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Next, uh, Abram, and this is perhaps the covenant we're going to linger over longest. He was a pagan called out by Yahweh. God speaks promises and blessings into his life, and in return asks him to train up his family to do what is right and just. There's a promise for a childless man that he'll father innumerable descendants, and a promise for one who was a wanderer that in the future his family would have a land to call home. Now, in Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve had eaten from the tree of knowledge, there are five curses or consequences to their rebellion. But as a counterpoint in Genesis 12, there's five blessings from God to Abraham. For every curse given, there's a blessing to come. And we see that God's already at work to recover his purposes to bless the earth. Through one person, Abraham, God intends that many will be blessed. Now to the covenant itself. As a bit of a warning, if this was screened at a cinema, it would probably get a film rating of at least 15 due to some of the gory descriptions. So it's definitely not a fridge magnet verse. Um, but this is Genesis chapter 15, reading between verses 5 and 18. And he, the Lord, brought him outside and said, look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Abraham brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So, in what we just read, essentially, Abraham brought some animals out into the desert, somehow cut them each in half, including a cow, blood everywhere, so much so that scavenger birds are then attracted to try and come down on them for food. Then Abram fell asleep. Then something happened with a torch and a pot, and somehow that was a covenant. I'm aware that this Lego is not visually accurate, but was perhaps the most PG for a Sunday morning. So Tom also mentioned a few weeks ago about the pitfalls of reading scripture purely in our own experiences and context. Now, you may have read this section before and thought, that's interesting or strange. I wonder what happened next. Or maybe like me, it kind of went over your head and just moved on to the next verses. If you're very diligent and love Bible history, you might have tried to find a concordance or some other books to just explain what's happening here. The writer doesn't give us lots of additional explanation or footnotes because they assume we know what's going on. Contemporary readers, so those who are living at the time this was recorded, would have understood and been familiar with how these various covenants worked and were enacted. But for us to see this, we need to jump forwards into the book of the prophet Jeremiah. So Jeremiah 34, verses 18 to 19. Um, these are God's words to the people in Jerusalem who didn't release their slaves as they had promised. And the men who transgressed my covenant and did not keep the terms of the covenant that they made before me, I will make them like the calf that they cut in two and passed between its parts. The officials of Judah, the officials of Jerusalem, the eunuchs, the priests, and all the people of the land who pass between the parts of the calf are delivered into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. So let's look at the last part of our Genesis reading again, now that we have a better idea of what's happening and how serious this covenant was. Walking through the path of these animal halves was the equivalent of signing a contract or agreeing to the terms and conditions today, but a lot more messy. But we also read that Abram fell asleep, so he didn't walk through the path of the animals. In Exodus and later books, we read how God appeared to his people as fire and as clouds of smoke. So the fire pot and the torch are also images of God. In making this covenant, God agrees to keep all of his promises to Abraham, but also agrees to take on the punishment which Abraham deserves should he not keep all of his commitments to the Lord. Only God walks through the covenant path. The Lord God is bearing all responsibility for Abraham and his descendants' failure. But a bit more on this later. Next, we move on to the nation of Israel. God demonstrated his love, provision, and affection to Israel when bringing them out of slavery in Egypt and through their time wandering in the wilderness. And this echoes the way that God clothed Adam and Eve in the garden even after they'd sinned. He was showing them how to love, trust, and obey. They were given the Ten Commandments, laws for living well as a community of God's partners. In Exodus chapter 19, the Lord says, I have called you to myself, was calling out a whole redeemed nation to him, a holy nation, to live with him and serve others as an example to those around them. 
and this would help the other tribes and communities just catch a glimpse of full, transformed and distinct lives with the God of Israel so that they might too want to accept these blessings. But as many of us will know, the Bible tells us that soon after this, Israel fail and begin a cycle of rebellion, injustice, consequences, repentance, rescue, and then back to rebellion again. They make a golden calf and start to worship it, even while Moses is still on Mount Sinai talking to the Lord God. And when this happens, Moses doesn't try to excuse them or promise that they'll be better. He falls back on God's past covenant promises and faithfulness. The people have earned God's punishment, yet he says, Lord, do not forget your promise. And the hope is always rooted in God's promises. Theologian N.T. Wright has said of this event, no sacrifice that Moses could offer could possibly have been adequate or appropriate. The only hope lay in a broken and contrite heart and the character and promises of God. And finally to David. Many of God's covenant promises to David were the same as in Abraham's covenant, to make David's name great, to give him rest from enemies, to bring security for Israel and to uh, establish a dynasty. And that one of David's descendants, importantly, would be a king, bringing peace and justice to the whole world. And in return, David was asked to continue to help the people follow God's laws and do what was right. But in some way, Abraham, Israel and David break their covenants. They worship other gods and allow injustices. So they lose their land, which was promised to them by God, and they're forced into exile. So why did God use these people knowing that they would all fail? Each of these characters have moments of great faith, obedience, blessing, and are described as righteous, right with God. They are advancing God's goodness to their communities and nations. But equally, we see in them episodes of deceit, scheming, choosing their own paths rather than God's laws. Humanity was created and appointed by God to bring goodness out of his creation. And as mentioned in some of our previous series, we're God's image bearers. And we're also covenant creatures designed to live and work as partners. We need God. Fully living comes from our relationship with him. And this may or may not be a story you believe right now. But these flawed characters show us the tension between recognizing our need for God and his good purposes versus our wills to do what we want and doing what's right in our own eyes. So we have these broken covenants. What is the solution? As the kingdoms of Israel and Judah fell and they were taken into exile, they may well have questioned what had come of God's great promises to Abraham, Israel and David. Were God's promises thwarted by Babylon? Had his purposes to redeem creation through them failed? But even in exile, there were prophets speaking out God's truth and continued plans over them, like in Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. This is the covenant I'll make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I'll put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So without putting too much of a spoiler in for the next act in the story, uh, Jesus is that new covenant. 
Jesus fulfills all of these past covenant relationships. He's from the line of Abraham. He's the faithful Israelite who's able to truly obey the law and a king descended from David who's seeking to extend peace and justice. The story of the Bible claims that to do all this, Jesus was no mere human, but God become human. He's the faithful covenant partner that we were all made to be, but have failed to be. God upholds his promises, but God also bears the punishment of our failed commitments. And if we think back to our passage from Genesis and the covenant between Abraham and God, we can see some symbolic links to the Last Supper. Jesus was drawing this parallel later for his disciples too. The halved animals become like broken bread, which foretold of Jesus' broken body, and their blood like the wine poured out as Jesus would pour out his blood on the cross. So we have a way forward, a new covenant, a newness of life. God's accomplishing his purposes for humanity and creation through his promises, and we all get to participate in this. God will always be to us as he should be, regardless of our faithfulness or failure alike. He never gives up on us. We have a way opened up for us to each enter into a covenant, a partnership of purpose, and to continue reversing the effects of the garden fall. But this isn't a one-time transaction. We're not sanctified and left to our own devices to do whatever we want. We're not saved to then just sit passively and wait for the rapture to come. We need to be a people learning more and more to depend on him and let him work through us. As followers of Jesus, we aren't called to shut ourselves away in Christian bubbles, but be active, welcoming, showing the grace and goodness of God to be a light to those around us, our families and our communities. In our wandering, we can learn to depend on him. And when we feel like exiles, he becomes our hope. Though in some ways we're very different from biblical Israel, we share the same calling, the same purpose, the same mission. Paul writes in Galatians 3.17, the law introduced 430 years later does not set aside the covenant previously established by God and thus do away with the promise. Um, a few weeks ago, Tim and I watched a film at the cinema called Phantom of the Open. I quite recommend it. It's a biopic about Morris Flitcroft, who was a man dubbed the world's worst golfer, though they obviously haven't seen me play mini golf. And he hit the highest opening round score ever recorded in the British Open. And later in life, when asked for his advice in interviews, he said, practice is the road to perfection. Perhaps ironically, despite his practice and passion, he didn't get significantly better and never won any major tournaments. Yet he still persevered. Despite being banned from some, he still entered many tournaments under various pseudonyms and disguises, including Gene Paychecki, Gerald Hoppy, and James Bojolly. And in many ways, this is the same for us. Practicing the way of Jesus to extend God's blessings is important for our growth and fulfilling our purpose as covenant partners. But in no way does this make us perfect. We can't make ourselves perfect. Through scripture, we see that God's promise is so much more powerful than Israel's sin and brokenness. And this is still true for each of us today. God has always planned and will continue to use rescued people to rescue people. But remember, we don't do this in our own strength, but through the gift of his Holy Spirit to empower and change us to choose God's ways. 
in Ezekiel 36, 26 to 28, God promises, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So what can we make of all this? In brief, my thoughts were to be amazed at the lengths to which God, the good covenant maker, will go for us as his people to draw us to him. Be reminded that we won't ever attain perfection or be faultless covenant partners, but we're still called to participate in the outpouring of blessing and renewal to fulfill God's purposes for his creation. Be encouraged if you feel like you're falling short or aren't worthy in some way of these promises. All of these other covenant partners we've heard about still failed, but are called righteous and remembered as heroes of faith. And finally, be convinced that in the story of God, he's not only in control, but be convinced of his faithfulness and his goodness to us. I'm going to hand back to Tom now to kind of lead us in prayer and worship. Well, thanks so much for listening to this teaching from Nen Valley Vineyard. We pray it blesses you and produces good fruit in you. If we can connect to you or help you engage with our community, we'd love to hear from you. You can contact us via our website, which is Nen Valley dot church